Welcome to the Talking Leaves podcast. I'm your host, Miss Kyra, and we are returning for episode 7 of our mini-series about Homer's The Odyssey. In the last six episodes, we closely read book one and learned all about Homer's stage setting, which takes place before we fully join Odysseus and his reliving of his 10-year journey home. In this episode, we'll take a look at book five and see Calypso, the sweet nymph, firsthand. In this book, if you're reading the same version I am, you'll see some areas where the poem lines are replaced with italicized summary sections. This shows you that we're reading a condensed and excerpted section of the book. These are parts of the poem, stanzas and sections, that get replaced with summary. For the sake of reading this as a class, and for the sake of focusing on what the textbook makers deem most essential, these excerpts are really the focus, and the summary just helps us get the in-between parts that are less of the focus for us. While these excerpts, what the actual poem that's given to us, are the focus, I'm going to go over some aspects that get left out in the summary, or the chunks that are removed and replaced from summary, that seem, to me, just as equally important. I'm a bit disappointed that some aspects are left out, to the detriment of some of the characters into the storyline itself. This summary that we start with is how Book 5 itself starts in our version. Instead of rereading a near replica of the conversation between Zeus and Athena about Odysseus, What do you hold against him now, father? My word, what strange remarks you make! How could I possibly forget that kingly man, Odysseus? No mortal, half so wise, no mortal gave so much to the lord of the open skies. Instead of hearing Zeus spit some more rhymes, we learn that of the ten years Odysseus has been trying to return home from the Trojan War, seven of those years have been spent on Calypso's island of Ogea. Multiple pronunciations to that. That's how I'm going to stick with saying it. And as the summary says, he's been held captive there by Calypso herself. While Calypso must let Odysseus go, she will only help him a little bit. She can help him build a raft, and then he must, quote, sail for 20 days before landing on the island of Scyria, where he will receive help to return home. I'm going to pause here and remind us that the only reason this plan works is because Poseidon is not on Mount Olympus, nor is he in his usual domain. He's away at the edge of the world at a feast where he lingers. So Zeus and the other gods, and even the textbook makers, before we blame Calypso for holding Odysseus captive, let's remember that even if Odysseus would have left the island, the god of the sea was mad at him. What would have happened if he had left an island? He would have been tortured or potentially killed by Poseidon. So yeah, let's just blame Calypso for holding him captive and keeping him alive and worrying about this mortal man that even Zeus respects. And you know, she did want him to love her. So, you know, let's just not forget that, okay? With that said, and with that woefully omissive summary behind us, we then jump toward the action after Athena takes off for Ithaca. Hermes, the wayfinder, one of his many epithets, is sent to Calypso's island Ogea to share the god's decision to let Odysseus go. It is here, with Hermes on his way, that we read a near replica of what we read earlier with Athena putting on her golden sandals. Hermes puts on his golden sandals. So if you thought of that when reading it yourself, kudos to you. 
As Jill Dash's TED-Ed video, Everything You Need to Know About the Odyssey tells us, this is an example of the repetition of descriptive passages that rhapsodes, the ancient Grecian professional storytellers, would do to help them memorize various tales. We even receive some metaphors about Hermes, who is compared to a gull patrolling between the wave crest of the desolate sea, who will dip and catch a fish and douse his wings. Clearly, Hermes is a hunter, a messenger who patrols the word for prey and for fun. He flies until the distant island lay ahead, then rising shoreward from the violet ocean, he step up to the cave, which is Calypso's home on her island. We receive a beautiful description of her and of the island itself. Lines 17 through 34 read, Upon her hearthstone a great fire blazing scented the farthest shores with cedar smoke and smoke of thyme, and singing high and low in her sweet voice, before her a-weaving, she passed her golden shuttle to and fro. A deep wood grew outside, with summer leaves of alder and black poplar, pungent cypress. Ornate birds here rested their stretched wings. Horned owls, falcons, cormorants, long-tongued beach-combing birds, and followers of the sea. Around the smooth-walled cave, a crooked vine held purple clusters under ply of green, Four springs bubbling up near one another, shallow and clear, took channels here and there through beds of violet and tender parsley. Even a god who found this place would gaze and feel his heartbeat with delight. So Hermes did, but when he gazed his fill, he entered the wide cave. Clearly, any mortal or immortal would be impressed with Calypso's island, and even Calypso herself. Everything is beautiful. Everything is a respite or a vacation away from the demands of the world. This sounds like the type of place anyone would want to live. Even Hermes, who's traveled far and wide, looks his fill before he goes about the task he was sent there for. This description and this statement that even a god who found this place would gaze upon it and feel happy is very important because there's someone here who does not feel light or happy. Odysseus, as we are told in the summary, has been here for seven years, and he is clearly unhappy. He, a mortal man, cannot be tempted by the beauty of the island or the goddess who lives there. He still wants to go home, as we see in the next lines. Upon entering the cave, Hermes looks around and sees that Odysseus is not there. Odysseus, who sat apart as a thousand times before, was not enjoying himself or this lovely island. Instead, Odysseus racked his own heart groaning with eyes wet scanning the bare horizon of the sea. Hermes, seeing this, then sits down with Calypso to a meal that she invites him to and tells her why he has come. Zeus has ordered that Calypso must not detain Odysseus any longer and she must send him on his way home. Calypso reluctantly obeys, agreeing to offer Odysseus advice on how to get home. This is another part that the textbook makers, the people who are choosing which parts we actually read, really bothers me. Because in the actual full text that Robert Fitzgerald translates, Calypso has the guts to point out to Hermes the hypocrisy and the double standard taking place. The gods go around and take advantage of mortals and immortals alike. We all probably know by this point that Zeus himself takes advantage of women all of the time when they don't want him, but he's gonna make it happen anyways, just like with his sister Hera, who didn't wanna marry him, but he tricked her and he forced her to marry him anyways, and then he goes out and he sleeps with a ton of other women. Yeah. Calypso herself, though, can't keep a singular man who is actually, you know, doing him a favor by keeping him safe from Poseidon. 
She points this out quite nicely in the full translation. But in our version, there's no mention of this. Apparently, we don't need to worry about this double standard or the fact that Homer himself brings up this double standard. Now, was Homer doing this out of some sense of equality? Likely not, but he was probably giving Calypso some spice and some spine that we can all appreciate even today. So with that little rant out of the way, let's move forward with what happens. Hermes, the strong god glittering, left her after giving this command, and now her ladyship, having given heed to Zeus's mandate, his order, went to find Odysseus in his stone seat. He had tear on tear brimming in his eye. Clearly, Odysseus is suffering and none too happy to be there. The sweet days of his lifetime were running out in anguish over his exile, for long ago the nymph had ceased to please. Odysseus used to be happy here. The nymph Calypso used to make him happy. Catch the euphemism here. Hint, hint. <clears throat> but now he was bored of her and he wanted to go home. And I will admit we learned that, he, that his desire didn't matter to her. She compelled him to lie with her. So definitely not okay here. There is this concept that's called consent. It's vital. So each night he forgot of his desire to leave because she compels him to forget it. But each day he remembered, and he sat on his rock and he cried with his broken heart out in the open. Calypso interrupts his mourning and says, O forlorn man, be still. In other words, O miserable, desolate man, be quiet. Here you need grieve no more. You need not feel your life consumed here. I have pondered it, and I shall help you go. She tells him there's no more need for tears or grief or misery. She'll help him leave her now. Conveniently, she leaves out that the gods told her to do this. She takes him back inside of her cave, and they're pictured there side by side, the mortal and the immortal. It's an interesting description there that he is by her side. He is almost equal to this immortal. This emphasizes his greatness. He takes the chair now left empty by Hermes. Again, his greatness is emphasized. He's sitting in the same seat a god just left, and they eat together and she sits down before him and faces him, with her maids there serving them. Each of their hands go out to the feast before them until they've had their fill. And she says to him, in lines 69 through 79 roughly, Son of Laertes, versatile Odysseus, after these years with me you still desire your old home? Even so, I wish you well. If you could see it all before you go, all the adversity you face at sea, you would stay here and guard this house and be immortal. I know you wanted her forever, that bride for whom you pine each day. Can I be less desirable than she is? Less interesting? Less beautiful? Can mortals compare with goddesses in grace and form? In other words, she's offering a versatile Odysseus, which is another epithet, another reference to how skilled and great and how adaptable to anything he is. She's offering him immortality and offering him the opportunity to stay with her forever here as her equal. And not only that, she kind of hints at her own vulnerability, her own vanity here. This mortal man she has given everything to, who she has offered the rest of her immortal life to, who she has offered immortality to, still wants to go home to his mortal wife. And so she asks, can someone else be more beautiful than me? Can someone else be more desirable than this island that even a god wants to live at? 
And here we see this versatility. We see firsthand Odysseus is cunning and his strategicness, another epithet, one of many for him. The strategist answers her. My lady goddess, here is no cause for anger. My quiet Penelope, how well I know, would seem a shade before your majesty. Death and old age being unknown to you, while she must die. Yet it is true, each day I long for home long for the sight of home. What he's doing here is very important. He knows that he could easily offend Calypso, a goddess. He says there is no cause for anger. He doesn't want to make her mad. But he also needs to be honest with her and make it very clear that there is no way he will stay. So he emphasizes Calypso's greatness, her immortality, her youth, her beauty, by contrasting her with his wife, who he calls quiet. By making Calypso seem great, and Penelope seem less so, he is not offending Calypso's vanity or pride. He also says that Penelope would seem a shade, she would seem gray, she would seem a ghost before Calypso's beauty. So whether or not he really believes this, he's very careful not to anger the god or goddess, like we've heard before. And so he makes his desire to return home about home, as opposed to another woman. He's a strategist. Next, we get another summary for another part of the text that's been removed. We learn that Calypso helps Odysseus build a raft, and just like the Wayfinder Hermes said, he would need to struggle on his raft in the wide ocean for 20 days. And we learn that for 17 days he sails on this raft until he is in sight of a place called Scaria. And then for three more days he is pummeled by storms and he finally swims for the island. So this, we can assume, Poseidon has finally returned from the land far away where he was feasting with the sunburnt races, or as a scholar tells us, with Ethiopians. He returned to a sea domain, and he's angry that they have let Odysseus go, but he knows that he can't win in a fight against all the other gods. So he does what he can. He makes Odysseus suffer one last time. He makes him suffer for three days on the ocean and finally allows Odysseus to wash up on the island of Scaria. Odysseus washes up on the island and hides himself in the brush or the bushes, and he hides far away from everything else on the island and tries to keep his spark alive for the next day. Whether literal spark of fire or metaphorical, we know Odysseus has just endured three days of battling with Poseidon in the sea, so he's tired. He's wary, and Athena showers sleep over him, so his distress should end soon, soon, and she sealed shut his cherished eyes. We see, just like Athena did with Penelope, that she cares for Odysseus and wants him to sleep off his present suffering. He needs to rest, and we see that the language shows how much Athena cares for him. She cherishes him. At last, after nearly ten years of trying, and after seven years of being stuck on Calypso's island, Odysseus is free, and one step forward, and one battle closer to home. From here, we skip to Book 9, which is perhaps one of the most famous and the best show of how cunning Odysseus is, while also a wee bit prideful and stupid. As stated in the previous episode, while there are 23 books in the Odyssey, we won't cover all of them in detail. So for the sake of continuity, I'm going to summarize the events of the books that we'll skip, relying on my own brief reading of the text itself and from trusty Sparknotes and other various sources. The summary shared here for those next few books we'll skip are from the Sparknotes website. 
In book six, The Night Odysseus Washed Ashore, Athena appears in a dream to the Phoenician princess Nausicaa, disguised as her friend. She encourages the young princess to go to the river the next day to wash her clothes so that she will appear more fetching to the many men courting her. The next morning, Nausicaa follows this dream's advice, goes to the river, and while she and her handmaidens are there, naked while their clothes dry on the ground, Odysseus wakes in the forest and encounters them. He is also conveniently naked, which makes this unbearably awkward. While he humbly yet winningly pleads for their assistance, he refuses to reveal his identity. Nausicaa leaves him alone to wash the dirt and brine from his body, and Athena appears just in time to make him look especially handsome so that when Nausicaa sees him again, she begins to fall in love with him. Oh, Athena and her meddling. Afraid of causing a scene, if she walks into the city with a strange man at her side, Nausicaa gives Odysseus directions to the palace and advice for how to approach Arete, the queen of the Phoenicians, and Nausicaa's mother. With a prayer to Athena for hospitality from the Phoenicians, Odysseus sets out for the palace. In book seven, it becomes soap opera-like. On his way to the palace and to see the king of the Phoenicians, Odysseus is stopped by a young girl who is actually Athena in disguise. She offers to guide him to the king's house and shrouds him or protects him in a mist that keeps the Phoenicians a kind but somewhat xenophobic or afraid and fearful of other people. She keeps them from harassing him by disguising him and keeping him invisible, kind of like Harry Potter in the Invisible Cloak. She also advises him to direct his plea for help to the queen, the wise and strong queen who will know how to get him home. And then Athena, disguised as a young woman, leaves him. As soon as he sees the queen, he throws himself at her feet and the mist about him disappears. At first, the king wonders whether this wayward traveler might be a god, but without revealing his identity, Odysseus puts the king's suspicions to rest by declaring that he is indeed a mortal man. He then explains his problem. The king and queen gladly promise to see him off the next day in a Phoenician ship. Then, of course, the mother, the queen, Arete, recognizes the clothes that he's wearing. They're her daughter's clothes. She presses him and learns the backstory of his journey from Calypso's island to running into her daughter to now. And the queen is so impressed with Odysseus that she offers her daughter's hand in marriage to him. Of course, Odysseus just turned down an immortal, a beautiful nymph. A young mortal princess isn't tempting, right? In book eight, the king requests the use of a ship to let the guest go home and the council approves. Then, that night, Odysseus is feasting with the Phoenicians, and in listening to a song about the Trojan War, he becomes sad. It is a song about his previous disagreement with Achilles, who he fought with against Troy. And the king says, don't be sad, let's play some games. Although asked to play, Odysseus refuses because he's still sad. He, however, is soon insulted by the Phoenician young men playing the games, and he is challenged. He joins in, quickly defeats them, and challenges them to more games. But the king of the Phoenicians diffuses this brewing fight and asks Odysseus to tell of his journey. Finally, Odysseus sits down and begins to tell his tale. And from there, we head to book nine. We've come to the end of our episode. We've reached the end of book five and the summarized events of book six, seven, and eight. From here, we'll skip to book nine, which is when Odysseus takes over narrating the tale and tells of his first adventures after winning the war at Troy. 
They sail for home, but because they are still high on victory, he and his 200 or so Ithacan men decide or perhaps are forced to island hop and see what else they can pillage and win. We'll soon find out the dangers of pride and plunder. Special thanks to these sources. Robert Fitzgerald's translation of Homer's The Odyssey, Sparknotes' summary on The Odyssey, Jill Dash's TED-Ed video, Everything You Need to Know About The Odyssey.